Hi, and welcome to In Talks With. I'm Danielle Radojcin. In this episode, my guest is the artist Richard Malone. Richard was born in Ireland in 1990. He studied at Central St. Martins and after graduating became a name to watch on the London fashion scene during the 2010s. His work has been recognised for its sensitivity towards the environment. As well as being awarded the prestigious LVMH Grand Prix Scholarship and Deutsche Bank's Award for Fashion, he has won the Walmart Prize for creating a fully biodegradable collection. The intervening years have seen his practice become more art-focused, and this year he was the winner of the Golden Fleece Award for Visual Art, Ireland's largest and most prestigious award for contemporary art. As well as touching on his working-class upbringing in Wexford in rural Southeast Ireland, his work explores ideas of queerness and otherness through sculpture, performance, textiles and installation. For 2023, he created a dance performance for the opening of the Hayward Gallery's Dear Earth, Art and Hope in a Time of Crisis exhibition and has a large site-specific piece on display at the Royal Academy's Summer Exhibition. I recently visited Richard at his studio in London, where we discussed, in his words, his radical and optimistic work, and why environmentalism is a class issue. Hi Richard. Hello. How's it going? It's good, very good. Quite warm, but um, otherwise good, yeah. so we're here in your studio in Greenwich mm-hmm. um, and it's been a massive week. I feel really privileged that I'm talking to you at what it feels like maybe the biggest week in your career. Yeah. Correct me if that's a bit too much of an overstatement, but um, you've just come off the, a performance at the Hayward Gallery's summer exhibition, yeah. Dear Earth, and you have a big piece at the Royal Academy summer yeah. exhibition. <laughs> so It's mad. Massive, major. <laughs> it feels massive. Congratulations. Thank you. How are you feeling about it all? Uh, it's like, unusual. I haven't processed any of it because it all had to get done quite quickly. Um, but good, I feel good about it. It's strange that it's so public-facing, I think, but it's one of those things that you do sort of in your studio and don't realise quite how many people will see it. So, yeah, it's an unusual thing, but it's quite a rewarding thing. And, every like... It's different teams of people that have been extremely trusting in a way that, like, I didn't expect would happen at institutions like those. So I feel really privileged to have had that trust. Yeah. That's quite nice, isn't it, to know that that... Exists, yeah. It's good to hear that that works like that, yeah. Um, So I was at the opening of that Dear Earth exhibition Mm -hmm. at the Hayward on a couple of nights ago, Mm -hmm. and I saw the performance, which was incredible. Um, How do you... How do you feel that went... Really good. I, I, you, you had two performances. Two performances. In, and it was to kind of celebrate the, the launch of the exhibition. Yeah, itself, yeah. and I think like, it's a very nuanced idea, that whole exhibition. And we've been talking about it for a long time, but because of other commitments, I had basically two weeks to do that. Um, but I take a lot of like journals and sketches and I had a lot of written pieces ready. So like we kind of edited it and I, I, I constructed it in a way that was sort of deconstructing an orchestra or what a performance is. So, like, different people are responding to each other. It's not really overly rehearsed. Um, people in the... Performers in the show had, like, an instrument or something they could activate or there was spoken word, but I didn't want it to feel like you were being given something. It was just a happening. And that's really what me and 
Rachel Thomas, the curator, spoke about from the beginning. We just wanted it to be a happening and we wanted it to be really about presence. And like, I don't really mind if it's not documented because it was about that moment. And I think a lot of what's in the show is really about that. It's quite human. Yeah. Um, I should say the full title of the exhibition is Dear Earth, Art and Hope in a Time of Crisis. And I think that title's important because mm -hmm. the exhibition is focusing on uh, the environmental crisis, but spe specifically art's response to that. Mm -hmm. But what I think feels particularly modern and perhaps particularly now is that there is um, it, there's a positive message. Yeah. Um, it's inspired by one of the artists who's featured in the exhibition, Ottobong Nikanga's suggestion that um, caring is a form of resistance, 100%. which I think is a really lovely yeah. idea and concept. And it does feel particularly now, this idea that focusing on biodiversity and regeneration mm -hmm. as opposed to just constantly hammering home this message of it's all hopeless and yeah. this sort of dystopian narrative that you read so much from and that it's really hard to yeah. engage with. I mean, you yourself have been an advocate for sustainable for, for sustainability mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about how you came to talk to Rachel Thomas yeah. um, about being featured in the show and why she thought you were a good fit? I think it's because actually before I started like writing and thinking about the rehearsals, I was on a residency in Ireland on a regenerative farm and I've done a lot of research with that. And I think previously I've had a lot of work in fashion or garment making, but it's like it's always starting from the point of not overproducing, you know, and that's something that people just can't seem to get into their heads. So it's quite, it's although it's a hopeful show, like you certainly, I can feel quite disappointed about it because we went through a pandemic in that time and no one was really talking about that when I first started. And it's all of these things that are overlooked in terms of regeneration and how connected it is to culture. For me, how connected it is to things like queerness or where I'm from in Ireland and class and all of these things that labour is constantly overlooked and I think Rachel was really instrumental in like curating a show that celebrated you know types of weaving or drawing or painting movement motion things that are quite ethereal things that in my mind are a little bit like witchy and spiritual and like there's a lot of these ancient cultures that has been part of my research in terms of being from rural Ireland like pre-colonization there's all these incredible things that are very similar to Sanskrit or Yoruba tribes about celebrating sun and worship and they're, they're very ancient. And in things like folklore, you're celebrating biodiversity constantly. Like the whole point of folklore is to make us focus on the earth and be in tune with the seasons. Um, and that's always been something that I've been really interested in, I suppose. And I think Rachel the same. So like the conversation felt very natural in what we were trying to do. And it's also Are you this... from a similar part? You're from Wexford. I'm right? from Wexford. Where is she from? Is that she's South? from Wales, actually. Where my, from yeah, Wales, from where my um, boyfriend is from near there. But um, yeah, and, and just being from there, I think, and coming through England, like studying here, like the education is so different here. Um, and I think... Like in, in what kind of way? I think it's just it's very um, production-driven and sort of capitalistic and... I remember being in St. Martin's and like you mentioned, like someone would say something like maybe they'd want to use some images from like the Troubles in Northern Ireland because people looked cool. People thought that image looked cool or like Pony Boys or something, these famous versions of Ireland. And I'd be like, you absolutely can't do it. Like that's absolutely wild. Um, and people hadn't really realised there was like a civil war in our la lifetime. That's kind of the implications are ongoing. Um, so I'm always sort of thinking about that and 
So how, thinking about a broader context yeah. and the actual implications or meaning behind the yeah, image. Yeah, how or... it's maybe linked to colonisation. Like, you know, we've got a devolved government in Northern Ireland at the minute, and that's definitely linked to the ongoing sort of struggle. And like, I think for me as well, this ethereal thing of like a, a collective consciousness, like in Ireland, we've had these votes in the last 20 years that are for gay marriage and for uh, female reproductive rights. And that changes the consciousness completely. So it's such a different country that's like a very transient thing that accepts people and is very, it's very different, I think, when people vote to accept people. That's just strange. That's very democratic. So I think here it feels quite different. Like we're going through such a turmoil um, in terms of like the environment or rights, trans rights, anything like that. And it doesn't feel like there's the anger on the streets that you would get at home. And maybe that's because it's such a small country, but you realise in these conversations that everything really is linked. Um, and care is a really, a kind of, I suppose it's something that's hopeful, but it's also something that's quite radical. Yeah. So in the happening, in the performance from the exhibition opening, the dancers who yeah. are from Claude Ensemble were wearing costumes or dresses designed mm. by yourself. Yeah. And having seen, I haven't been to the RA yet to see the summer exhibition, unfortunately, but I've been looking at pictures of your piece there. Yeah. And there's a similar aesthetic 100%. going on in terms of the fabric use. This sort of uh, reminds me of a auditorium curtain or a kind of yeah. rippling curtain and this sort of almost shiny fabric. I was interested to understand why you work with that fabric and that kind of folding and rippling effect. Could you just talk a bit about that? I think I'm quite interested in, I'm very interested in, regenerative agriculture. I'm interested in really natural fibres, but I, I've been doing this for so long that I'm not naive to the fact that so many fabrics exist. So I'm, if we were to create everything from natural fibres on the scale, that synthetic things, it's, it's not sustainable either. It still uses really extractive resources. So in more recent years, I'm trying to use what already exists or get it from dead stock or like use stuff that we have in the studio that's been around before. And they're these sort of jersey fabrics that might be used for sportswear or something or like cheaper clothes and I find that quite interesting in the narrative of class where I'm from because that sort of fabric isn't usually desirable in the context of major institutions in the fashion world either um and so I'm always sort of synthetic fabric yeah it's like and yeah. they're either recycled polyester or they'll be dead stock or they'll be like sourced from a company that has stock of them and they're trying to get rid of um and I've, I've always had that parallel of going like, should I be launching something new, making something new, or can I just use what's already there? And also then the end game of it, like is, is a piece of art or a mobile or a sculpture, there's one of. And nearly everything I make, there's one of. You know, like people think it's made on scale because of the context of it, and it never is. And the, the sort of ruching and the stitching is something I'm fascinated by because my work's taken a lot more seriously than I ever expected it to be um, in terms of institutions and things. Um, and that comes from where I grew up, really. Like, it's a very... Those working-class rural environments are extremely gendered. And if you're someone who doesn't necessarily feel like you fit either of those things, or you acknowledge just the performance of both of those things. Um, so I learned to sort of stitch and sew with my grandmother, who was a seamstress for the local hospital. And then further back, you know, she didn't get an education, and, like, a lot of Irish women didn't, or Irish men at that time. But... Um, and then I worked with my dad on building sites and that was very much about like steel and concrete and plaster and masonry paint and those tactile languages making something that's respected as art feels quite radical as well because it never is and it, it really is a merging of those two worlds and it's all hand stitched and so like people look at it and because it's so 
I don't know, maybe it looks refined to people who don't sew, but like it's very, I don't know, it's kind of, it's a very difficult thing to do to make something look effortless and have that level of detail and stitch. So that's, for me, it's like respecting that and understanding, trying to communicate to people that, you know, my learning in terms of colour and form and shape or things that are slightly maybe abstract or they're a bit more transient or in these places that live between disciplines. That comes from where I grew up. It doesn't really come from my education. It doesn't really come from the institutions that I'm a part of. And that's not to say that they're not important, but like it's kind of valuing where you're from in a way. And it's it's a very rare place to be from. The longer I'm here, the longer I'm, you know, in these institutions or in these conversations. And certainly through like working a bit in fashion, you realize how rare it is to have that background. And I've never wanted to fetishize it. I've never wanted to be like, here's pictures of the street we grew up on or whatever. Like, here's the pattern, like, looks like my dad's building outfits or whatever. It's like we can actually use that as, like, a really beautiful tool. I think it is really beautiful, the place where I'm from. So making that inherent to the work feels quite radical and optimistic. Yeah. Why do you say you feel surprised that you've been, had so, that you've, by the, the amount of acceptance you've had from these institutions, as you call them? I don't know. It just, it seems wild. Like, it seems like it shouldn't have happened. I don't know. Like, it's just... Because I've always been very random and I've always been an anomaly. Like, I'm very used to, like, where I'm from in, in Ireland being, like, an anomaly and, like, having what would be strange interests and somehow that being embraced. And then even when I went through St. Martin's and stuff, I was always doing other stuff. Like, I would make animations or performance pieces or you know it was just really about leaning into what I sort of believed in um so yeah it's odd and like even me and my boyfriend are both very like working class and we always felt like this is so strange and it fe- you feel a weight of responsibility sometimes when you leave and when I finished at St Martin's like we had the old fees so if, if the fees had went up I couldn't have gone and now I'm in a position where like my own family can't have the same education as me and that's really weird um, so I feel really lucky, but yeah, it is a surprise. And even we used to live, like when I first graduated St. Martin's, I was living back in Ireland, coming here to do like lecturing work. And I made the, whatever I made in my dad's shed above it and brought it over. We drove over in a van actually. And then, um, then we moved to Manor House and we're in one of those, like your studios here and your beds above it sort of things. And my first ever studio visit was the, the MoMA in New York. And that was crazy because you know, my boyfriend's also an artist. Wait, when you say your first studio visit, you mean the MoMA came to visit you? Or yeah, you? the MoMA came to visit me in the studio in Manor House. Which was okay, mad. so how did MoMA find out about a I don't student know, like, living at Manor House? Yeah, well, I had graduated at that point and I'd made some work. Um, and this was 2016 or 2017 and they were planning this sort of big show. And I just got an email from them being like, we've sort of followed your work and we come for a studio visit. And I was like, what are they going to look no. at? You know? Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to yeah. say no. And then, you know, my boyfriend was like, you really, you'd have to say it. Like, there's literally no way. And then it was one, that was one of the first times that people, Paolo Antonelli, who was the curator there, was so like mindful of where I'm from and what it means and had written, she was planning this exhibition, had written really beautiful things about it and really interesting contextualizations to things like, I don't know, Russian constructivism or just like labor in the sense of stitch or cloth and fabric. And I felt really like, oh, this is a nod to be like, this is the path I'm on so I can do slightly more abstract things. But that's a weird thing to happen. It doesn't happen often. So I feel like, yeah, it's really weird. I mean, it's almost like 
it's it's yeah it's serendipity I guess that's the thing that's been happening to me all the time and it's the same with like my grandmother who passed away in 2019 she used to tell me stories of Eileen Gray who's from Wexford um, and I'm obsessed like the work is incredible you did and some exhibition exactly around her work. Yeah, yeah but I was after someone had approached me to do a show there and I was at her house which is like one of the, the most... The one in Ireland? No, the, the one, one in, in south of France, Africa. yeah. And it's like this iconic building that they were finally finished and they were like, oh, can you do a show there? And I'm like, that's a weird thing to ask after my grandmother passed away. So I think there's some sort of serendipity there. And then um, I, have, I think it's really obnoxious to do a solo show. There. So it turned into this um, conversation with Eileen Grace that we curated um, other Irish artists who I thought have this thing that I find hard to explain, but it's like a language in your identity that's quite radical and it doesn't need an explanation it doesn't lean on sort of tropes um and that then traveled and it was people like Nevo O'Malley who represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale and all these amazing people said yes and that kind of happened because we had the pandemic and I was basically made director curator everything so I was able to just get on kind of a whatsapp call or a zoom with these artists and go I think this will be good but you just have to trust me and send me the work <laughs> and we moved the work along like the house at Eileen Gray's Villa, like for, it was like a mile walk with these pieces of steel or really precious ceramics and installed them. And it felt like this crazy thing. And even I designed this rug with traditional rug makers in Wexford. And when we rolled it out, it fit like perfectly around the furniture that how Eileen Gray had intended it. So it was this really strange thing. And even that, that notion of storytelling, like my grandmother told me the story of Eileen Gray so I could envision myself having a career So like when that. you were a kid, you were already aware of her? And yeah, her and one of the only people I was aware of because of the connection to Ireland, and she had the house in Enniscorty, which is like 20, 20 minutes from where we live, which she hated. But um, it was just a strange thing. And she'd always Did your left Did grandmother out. know her? No, not at all. Not at all. And it's, it's very interesting because my grandmother left out the fact that she was like loaded and could do all these things. Because later I was like, how did a... You know, in 1920s or 1910 Ireland, like, how did someone have that career? And, you know, the whole conversation about this Irish modernity thing, I find really interesting because it's such a young, independent country and people have chosen what represents it. Those people were straight men. And when we got to the end of the show in, in Wexford, we brought it like, to my hometown. Neve was the one that said to me, she was like, it's, I think we just had a conversation. It was like all of the people selected for the show were selected for their work, but they're all like women and queer people and from working-class rural backgrounds. And that really says something about what happens when you give people that space. And it wasn't intentionally like that. Like, that wasn't, like, the box that we had to take. It was just... And that kind of represented the change that's happened in Ireland in this sense of modernity. And in terms of synchronicity, when I was doing the show in Eileen Gray, it was, it was a Giacometti show on that we got to go and see. And I, don't really, I didn't know much about Giacometti. I really like him. And then after that, I was asked to go and do a residency with Foundation Giacometti at the National Gallery in Ireland. And it was like these strange things that keep someone's being like, you're doing this and you're not allowed to have a choice yeah. in it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird. amazing. Do you seek these things out or do you think no. they just come up? Come? No, they just come out of the blue. I don't know how. Um, even the, like the RA, I was on a, that residency on a farm in Wexford, like more inland from where I'm from. And then I just had a phone call kind of going, would you be interested in doing the central hall? And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's March and I need to install it in May. But again, you don't really say no. Because I think it, if you overthink it or if I had too much time, it might become a pressured thing. And it really wasn't at all. Yeah. Do you believe in fate? Yeah, I think I believe more in like sort of intention and 
I think, I don't know how to describe it, like sort of a witchiness. I think you kind of... Yeah, I'm getting that sense. Yeah, too. and I really believe Is in it. Is it a folkloric thing that hops back to... You know, there are, you know, obviously in Ireland, in rural Ireland especially, yeah. there are there are so many beautiful stories that have come out of that part of the world. Yeah, I think it is a lot of that. I think, I, like, folklore is a real gift and an education. Things that aren't traditional education I always really value. Um, and I think there is something in that synchronicity and that witchy thing that there's some sort of path you're supposed to be on and there's nothing you can maybe do about it. Were you brought up religious? Mm, no, but I went to religious Catholic, Catholic school until I was 16 or 17 when I finished, so... But I don't think my family are really religious. I think it's always like there's a respect for it, but I don't think that in Ireland God means God. Do you know what I mean? It's like the universe, because when they were trying to spread Christianity or Catholicism in Ireland, they always had to do it near, well, like water. That's how you have like all of these watering places, because the original set, like Irish people, were there because they worshipped the other world, which was a place that you went through to access like something else. So, and the Irish language, like there's amazing words for things that are not really described in English. So like cotton, I think, is like a bit of a spark of electricity or something that comes off a bit of dust. And it's like there's words for that. And there's there's 32 words for grass, you know, and they all mean something different. And it's connected to agriculture. It's connected to labor. And I wonder if a lot of that language wasn't eradicated, what we'd have words for like or a better understanding of the world, because obviously men decided what we kept and a lot of words for, you know, female craft or female spaces maybe were lost. So, yeah, and I, I do, like, I'm really interested in the folkloric thing because, again, it's ethereal and like, there isn't a monetary value in it, which feels like in the world now everything needs a monetary value and that's only one value. It's only one value system, you know. And were your parents supportive of what of, of you going to yeah. <laughs> St. Martin's and getting into fashion design and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think they were. I think I, like... You mentioned your dad was in building and what about your... Yeah, he's mother? a painter and decorator. What um, did your mother do? My mum was... She works in... Now she helps like, severely autistic kids, but she's had a lot of different jobs. So she worked in Argos or she worked in the sort of shop near her house. And was a mum. So, yeah, she had a lot of things to be doing. But they were supportive. I think there's a lot of anxiety when... Because I was quite good at school. So I could have done something quite... Academically good. Academically Mm. good. And I think I could have done something quite academic, but I found it really... Would you have liked to? No, No. I found it really challenging. I think I found the structure challenging. I like academia and I like reading and I like writing and I like all of those, like, really studying. But... um, just the things that I'm interested in. I don't like the kind of forced nature of it. Um, and I think there was definitely apprehension because we don't have a framework for someone studying fashion design or fine art. Because when I applied to St. Martin's, I didn't. I really thought they'd put me in sculpture because of what I had in my portfolio. So it's like, what am I doing here? So you did a lot of art? Yeah, I did. And I did, yeah. like, I did my A-levels or leaving cert school in Ireland quite young. So I sort of started that when I was 16 and finished it when I was 17 and then did like a... FITA course, which is like an art course for people like who don't really know what they want to do. <laughs> and then I went to Wales and then from there I applied to St. Martin's. But I was always doing quite... I was always drawing, mainly. Uh, drawing and writing. Um, and then I kind of got really interested in more 
three-dimensional things. Did you enjoy your time when you were at Central St. Martins? Your time there, it sounds like it's a yeah. prison sentence. Did you enjoy your time? I did. And I like a lot of people complained about it because it is sort of like a game show. But I, I was really int- like, that's amazing to me. It was amazing that I was there. Did like you feel I, like you fitted in or did it take you a while to assimilate? No, no, I definitely didn't fit in. There was a real sense of like, I remember the first day we did this project it was like your summer project. And I had done loads of sketchbooks because I was just so enthusiastic about it. And then I had to go first. And firstly, they didn't really know what I was saying because of my accent. And they were just like, oh my God, what has happened here? I had all these photos of me wearing like different poles and building site paraphernalia, completely naked in black and white. And I think that they were like, we don't really know. Because everyone was very good at like the politeness of fashion where they're like, I've looked at blah, 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 designer and blah, 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 piece of art. And I've made this lovely black jacket. Right, was, like I, showing, explaining the references. Yeah, and I was like, I was in Ireland for the summer and I found these poles and I made this. And they were like, Ugh. but I always felt very different. But I think I've learned to embrace that. It seems like you've got a lot of confidence in your ideas. And did you, have you always had that no. sense of... No, And when, at what point in, did you get that confidence? I think in St. Martin's, they actually really encouraged that. Um, they were... I didn't spend a lot of time in the library um, until I did my dissertation, but I was never like a referencer. I don't have, you know, images of other things around. I have enough in my memory bank or my experience bank to work from. So I think they were just like, do that, just do what you do. And the more I feel connected to like what I was doing as a child or a teenager, the more it feels authentic and kind of real because you can get carried away with references. And it's very, I think now with the way social media operates, it's a copying's really acceptable. It's kind of cool to do something that looks like it was from the nineties or the noughties. And it, to me, that's really reductive and silly. Um, and I don't mean that as an insult to people that do that. I mean, like you can do a lot better, you know, like just because it's just because you know, it's cool. You shouldn't lean on the safety of it. And I think that's, that's never been what I wanted to do. So I always had that struggle in fashion because there's people who love that and think that's really good but I think that structure and the cycle of it is the problem it's why people feel really confined by it yeah that's a really interesting idea and when you left I think you graduated in 2014 yeah and you I don't know how I think it was already quite quickly 2015 you because you got picked up by Lulu Kennedy (laughs) at Fashion East yeah um, as part of our collective of designers which is always a bit of an accolade yeah it felt Um, like that and then you were showing at London Fashion Week. Yeah. And I think one of these funny things about that is like, it's, I chose fashion, I think, because of that pressure of having a job. But I didn't really make any collections until my graduate collection because I had to, to get the degree. Um, and then that sort of spiralled into like, I got a job offers when I graduated, but I like, I really, I'd already worked at one of the big companies in Paris in my placement year. And I was just like, this is soul destroying. Like, why... And it I think wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. And I think it's that thing, we never had any money. So money was never the value that you put on something. So I'm very grateful for that. Like, it was never, if someone offers you 100 grand, you just do it because it's 100 grand. You know, you, can, you don't need to live like that. And you don't need to kind of structure your life like that. So I'm, that's one of the lessons I'm most grateful for. But um, yeah, and it did feel like an accolade because in fashion, that's like an important thing. I don't really know. A lot of the accolades that I get from fashion, I'm less, 
I'm like, oh, wow, well, that's really nice and I appreciate it. Because you have won a lot of awards. I was looking through your biography and I was like, wow, you've got like the Walmart Award. Like, that was amazing because it was like a biodegradable yeah. collection you did. But yeah, you've had loads of different awards over the years. And yeah. is that going back to maybe that serendipity thing that we were talking about? And That's a strange thing as well because like, the, I mean, the Walmart thing as well was more like a structure of how you do things. So I'm really shocked they chose me because for the whole <laughs> thing, I'm like, here's the structure that's in place and you can work with, you know, different people you can and some of it was dead stock some of it was the intention of being really biodegradable but more so we had this pack that like people could adapt because I don't think sharing things is a problem and I don't want to scale up I never have Um, and I think I really love that thing of making clothes for people only a few people but um, that's what my grandmother did well she always like repaired things for people or made curtains and she made the clothes for a local hospital so and I like that conversation thing that happens when you're that close to someone having a personal relationship or some interaction with the person you're making the clothes for and I think I only really like fashion in the sense when it is valued like that Um, because I've worked with a lot of people in it it didn't ever feel like that right for me and everyone who's close to me knows that but um you're gonna have to do it and working with like people like Bjork or Roisin Murphy they like I really believe in what they do and they have like mm-hmm. so this... you've created pieces for them to perform in or yeah exactly or just for their life and Beyonce as well is that correct yeah you, your, your name is forever entwined on Google search with oh. Beyonce's I think oh well <laughs> lucky me no. um, but yeah there's certain but you have a part like with, with Björk and Rashid Murphy you had some kind of yeah chats and making things and like yeah. I think also just their music has been really like a gift mm. um and it's one of those things that is artistry and that's very different. It's not like, it's again that thing of like, you can make music, you can make art that's like people pleasing and easily digestible and they've never done that. They've always stuck to their own guns and been sort of oddball. So it feels like the right thing to do, even if it was just like being, having a conversation, like they're the type of people I'd like to have a conversation with because they've mm. always retained themselves and not got lost. And I think that's incredible what do you think the answer is for younger i'm thinking about younger people who are really interested in fashion and you might not have an answer for this because it's it's quite a big question but i just think that you know a lot of the big fashion companies there's a lot of greenwashing tokenism around environmental issues um and young people certainly there is for a lot of you know young people they still care there's this need to consume and Mm -hmm. just have lots and follow trends and buy, 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 lots and lots of stuff, a lot of yeah. it cheap, like you think of Cheyenne or all those things. Yeah. But is it about a mind shift or... I think it's... Because it, otherwise it's always just going to be something that's very, like, a niche yeah. group of people who are going to be wearing things in a mindful, environmentally conscious way. And, like... What can be done? Class is a major factor in that. Like, it's all of the sort of environmentalist, influencery people... You don't hear from a labourer. You don't hear from someone who makes the clothes. You know, you don't hear about the yeah. importance of that culturally or the significance. But do you think it's about job. giving those people a platform that could? I think it's about giving those people a platform, and I think it's about legislation. I think like, it's absolutely bizarre to me that we have a fashion industry, and like it's the same thing in the art world as well. Like some people make so much product, and it's not necessary, but it's also not legislated, and nor is social media like the fact that social media is this thing that's been around for what like eight or ten years really and it's part of people's lives and it's unlegislated frightens me all the time because there's corporations in your home and in your pocket and in your conversation so it's really that's really frightening but I think there's an awareness of it it's just how do we enact it because it's such a mess 
And everything has these different structures around it that actually people don't want to get rid of. Especially like my experience in fashion even more so. Like the people, when I first started in fashion, and I'm quite glad that like people were, some people were willing to look at it as a practice as opposed to like a fashion industry thing or a brand, which it never was. Um, but everyone, like, I mean, the designers, the journalists, the people who worked at the magazines that were allegedly important, the people who worked at the councils that are allegedly important, they lived around Westbourne Grove. They all lived in there and they could not understand the concept of like, that's quite radical and scary that it's that insular. And there's not a problem of that. It's just, if that's the only thing that you're getting, then you're, you're like, and that comes down to like the models, the model bookers, they're all from that area, know each other from school. And the more I get into it, and even in the art world, like they've all been to these sort of private schools and know each other. And I'm just like, this is scandalous. And it's really isolating if you are like an immigrant or if you're someone that doesn't have family here, like that concept of like winning a prize. Like if I hadn't won one of those prizes, I don't know where I'd be because I am reliant on it. And that's a strange, even getting a bursary, like if I get 5,000 pounds from the BFC or a Fashion East or any of those things, like that's a lifeline, whereas to someone else's pocket money. How do you support yourself I financially? I have commissions and sell work, so I'm very lucky. Works of art. Yeah. yeah. And I have arts council funding and various other things. So it's not like a huge income, but it's not like I don't really think I need a huge income. This year you won the Golden Fleece Award for Visual Arts. Yeah. Ireland's most prestigious <laughs> yeah. art prize. Yeah. I love the way you sound sort of surprised at that, but... I was really surprised at that because it is like, it's got a funny name, but um, yes. it's, and I think that goes back to like Justin and the Argonauts or something, like it's a strange name, um, but at least it's not a corporation name, I suppose, and there's nothing tied into it. And it's just, it's a Lillian, Lillian Mitchell who left some money because she wanted artists to sustain their lives or whatever. But um, yeah, I won that in March and that was a real, that was another real surprise. Um, Maybe you're just much more talented than you ever realised. Yeah, it's not, I don't know, it's not, I think it's because it's not that I don't think I'm talented. It's, it's like, it isn't that, it's like, I just, I don't think I want to be, look for prizes to define or validate it. You know what I mean? Yet they keep happening, but it's like, it's not a thing that I think we all need to rely on. I don't think that makes someone a better artist. I think it's just like the conversation that's happening at that minute you're a part of. And, you know, it, I wouldn't want... Although, like, they're really an honour to win and be a part of these things, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's still be making the same work, I suppose. Probably just in a much, like, smaller space or back in Ireland or something. But, yeah, it's a strange one. Can you see yourself going back to Ireland to live at some point? I, like, since we did the Eileen Gray project in 2020, I've been back a lot. Like, I was there seven months of last year. I attended the residency there. I had two solo shows, so I've, I've spent a lot of time there. And I'm always kind of going there. But I, I think I'm more like someone that's in between things. And I quite like, I've been that for a long time. You know, like, people don't really understand the culture that you're from or the humor that, place that you're from or, like, how you interact, your education, all those things. So, like, you're always sort of between being understood and not and in both places now. And I kind of think that's something to maybe embrace. I mean, maybe that's a sign that you're on the right path, that you're just like a being able to do the thing that you do. And sometimes you're understood and sometimes you're not. And sometimes people are weary of things that are harder to understand. But that sort of friction is sometimes good as well. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, some really interesting ideas that you've thrown up in this conversation. What um, are you planning anything beyond this big moment when you've got this summer <laughs> exhibition? Or you, you just need a holiday? I, I'm having a holiday in July. Where are you going? I'm going to Pembrokeshire because that's where my boyfriend's from. And my uh, brother recently had a baby. So we're all going to go as a family there and do like a family holiday. And Walks. Walks and eating. I think that's all I like to do, really. Um, and swim. And then I'll go to Ireland next Thursday. Roshi Murphy is playing Trinity College, which feels like a big moment. So I'm going to go to that. And then we'll stay in Wexford and like swim all the time. But I also kind of just want to be in the studio and make work that's not for a big institution for a minute. Because I have like um, studio visits and like some collectors or institution people want to visit and I'm like can you come in September maybe when I've made something that isn't on view you know do you think um musicians just a a random question that just occurred to me but why do you think um female musicians I'm thinking about these big sort of iconic women Mm -hmm. like you to design stuff for them for a stage costume I don't know and it's also it's kind of particularly those like, my first favourite song that I have a memory of was Bjork's It's All So Quiet. And I that, because as a child, I must have been like five or six. And I remember being in my grandmother's house in Wexford Town. It was like one of those little two up, two down houses. But I just go like bonkers off the wall listening to it. I think that's such a gift. So I think there's some synchronicity in that idea in like not, like they're not people that conform to any sort of, standard but in in a way by doing that you sort of set the precedent which they have done and I think it's that idea and it's the same thing as when I read that book Ninth Street Women about the women who invented abstract expressionism which is obvious and um, but and the same that new one the is it the other side with Jennifer Higgy it's another it's another book about like female artists who are always doing it but they were very connected to sort of seances in the other world and I just think yeah, that, that whole thing kind of makes sense. And I think I've, as a queer person in that sort of community, female environments are things that I most relate to because they're extremely protective. And you get to do the things that are sort of, or I did like more sensitive or more about stitch or sewing or drawing. And also in those environments, women talk about things that are real. I think that's why things like the repeal of the eighth movement got true because people talk in person and sometimes we forget about that that level of connection and conversation changes everything so I think it's it's more ethereal things it's more um, yeah it's people who've like relied on themselves and been themselves I find the most inspiring and that's really like not something you see a lot of in fashion maybe or in art as well like it's it's the rare thing to come across so for people like Bjork or Roshi Murphy it just feels like that makes sense to me that's like what I'd like to listen to. Like we were always listening to that in here. And then you send like Roisin does a gig of groups of us go to it because she's such so iconic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking no, to me. You. Really loved it. You've been listening to In Talks With with me, Danielle Rodeutchen. The sound and theme music is by Woogie Productions and the artwork is by Patrick Wall. If you enjoyed this episode, please pass it on to someone who you think might also like it. Please subscribe and leave a review. To pitch for guest ideas, you can DM me via my socials at Danielle Rodeutchen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>